This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app where you can listen live but also listen back to shows right across the network and you'll even get little alerts so if there's something good on the radio you get a notification so that's good to download that lovely right coming up on today's episode is he so softy or is he care hardy Keir Starmer's records director of public prosecutions is in the dock he's put it there now everyone's arguing about it we'll hear the case for the prosecution and for the defence that's our big thing coming up in just a moment but first as ever on a Monday we kick off with the Columbus panel The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio and we say Borodar to Libby Purvis morning Libby morning and Borodar to Rachel Sylvester morning Rachel Morning. And there'll be more uh, Welsh lessons a bit later on to try and make amends <laughs> for last week's uh, Farago, um, where we upset some of our Welsh listeners by um, discussing the, the plan to rename Brecon Beakers. So we'll do that in a moment. Uh, let's talk about someone else who's had to issue an apology. Uh, the few, uh, Diane Abbott uh, apologising after writing a letter uh, to the Observer claiming that Jewish people could not suffer from racism. Uh, Libby, what do you make of this, first of all? Should we be surprised um, or not? Oh, dear. I mean, she, she's, I'm glad they, they've thrown her out, um, and she should have been thrown out long ago. Um, I mean, she called on her examples of how, you know, only black people were ever victims of racism by calling on the 18th century slave ships and on America a century ago, you know, the, the, all the, the, the American laws, her examples that only black people can be victims. I mean, she forgot the Holocaust, she forgot anti-Semitic problems everywhere else, plus the treatment of the Roma all across Europe, as in Romania. It, it's like, I think it was remarked by Whoopi Goldberg, that idea that nobody with a whitish skin can ever be considered a victim of any kind of racism. It was just stupid. And then this extraordinary excuse that it was, oh, it was a first draft, you know, as if the letters editor wouldn't have checked 
romantic with a public figure that's the importance of Diana but I just I don't know what she's about it's absolutely crazy and it suggests an innate anti-semitism which she just is not going to be able to get over yeah, so she, just in case people aren't across this, uh, she was responding to an article uh, by Tomawa Owalade who uh, discussing um, uh, racism in Britain is not a black and white issue, it's far more complicated, and said that Irish, Jewish and traveller people all suffer from racism. And Diane Abbott, in her letter to the Observer, said they undoubtedly experience prejudice. This is similar to racism, and the two words are often used as if they're interchangeable. It's true that many types of white people with different points of difference, such as redheads, can experience this prejudice but they are not all their lives subject to racism. And then went on to say, in pre-civil rights America, Irish people, Jewish people and travellers were not required to sit at the back of the bus. In apartheid South Africa, these groups were allowed to vote. At the height of slavery, there were no white-seeming people manacled on the slave ships. Um, Rachel, this is, I suppose, for all the people who get cross every time I discuss Jeremy Corbyn and his attitude to anti-Semitism, it's a reminder that the, the, the left in British politics, the hard left, their sort of anti-imperialist worldview drifts into this idea that, that, that only a certain type of person can be the victim of racism. Yeah, it's the hierarchy of victimhood, isn't yeah. it? And it's absolutely appalling. I find it incredibly difficult to understand really how she could write this. And, and very disappointing because actually Diane Abbott, um, for all her left-wing views, is quite an interesting figure in politics. You know, I've interviewed her before. and She is obviously the first black woman elected to the House of Commons. She's had interesting things to say on, you know, absent black fathers and the education of black, particularly black boys. Um, but this is just so beyond the pale. It's, it's very hard. And this idea that it was an early draft just doesn't ring true unless there's some way in which, you know, it was drafted by an aide and she never actually saw it. The, the problem here is the values that it shows, the values that, um, you know, do not take seriously uh, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust even. You know, it's just there isn't this hierarchy of victimhood. It's prejudice or racism are bad wherever they occur. Uh, and it's, it's um, you know, she has got some history on this. She dis dismissed the allegations of anti-Semitism in the Corbyn era as all a smear. Uh, so there is a sort of... Uh, there is some history here. And how it has it has this feeling of, of of I speak only for my people, which is the most dangerous thing that anybody of any race can ever say. You know, I speak for my people, and that's it. Mm. And uh, how problematic is this for Keir Starmer, Libby? Do you think, given that he did, he wasn't particularly outspoken at all on the anti-Semitism issue while he sat in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. He campaigned to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister twice. He sat around the shadow cabinet with Diane Abbott. Is it too little too late for him now to suddenly take a hard line on this and start taking the whip away from people? No, I think he's he moved fast in this case. I mean, give him credit, he, he did move fast. He didn't immediately say, as some others have done all over Twitter, oh, for heaven's sake, she is, as Rachel says, in many ways a good and interesting person. You know, she's mm. apologised, that's it, let it go. Uh, I think Keir Starmer moved as fast as, as a rattlesnake in this case. Um, so fair fair enough. I, I don't think you can say too little too late, because well, no, you know, I suppose, what I suppose he's done the, before. But, but he didn't speak out when much the same points were being made by Jeremy Corbyn and others while he sat around the shadow cabinet. 
Uh, I suppose Jeremy was his leader. I mean, yeah. people people have sat around Boris's table and pretended that he wasn't talking rubbish, haven't they? <laughs> That is a that is a that is a good point. We'll, we'll see we'll see where it goes next. And and like you said, uh, Rachel, it's it, in many ways it's a shame because of all the good work that Diane Abbott has done on other issues of race. Yeah, and the interesting question is what happens now? Is she allowed to stand as a Labour MP at the general election? So Labour have got this internal inquiry. It's quite hard to see how it you know what it can find that we don't know already. Um, but the, as I say, the problem is that it shows us a set of values that Keir Starmer is desperately needing to denounce and distance himself from, given the history with Corbyn. Uh, so it, it puts him in a difficult position about what should happen, because with Jeremy Corbyn, he said the reason he's not allowed to stand as a Labour MP is because he's refused to apologise for his comments. Diane Abbott immediately has apologised, but still she's... Apparently, yeah, yeah. written this letter, which shows all these um, values. We'll see. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, let's um, let's move on and talk about uh, rewriting books. Uh, we've got an interview coming up uh, later on Times Radio with Michael Morpurgo, telling us what he would do if he ruled the world. But also, um, he enters the debate on whether books should be rewritten to reflect modern sensibilities. Publishers approached me certainly with certain words that I did use in books, and it's quite true. You might have used words or expressions or attitudes which offend now, and that's important to avoid. There is however. The however is, I think, that it's really important for children to read books and have some sense of the when, when the books were written. You, you just cannot go on rewriting Dickens and rewriting Shakespeare to suit people. Life was different. People were different. We did have different attitudes. Uh, it's really interesting, this, um, Rachel, because Michael Pergo makes the point that instead of nitp- use the word nitpicking individual words, that actually just read works as they were written at the time, while also, actually, interestingly, he's rewriting the story, he's retelling the story of Black Beauty at the moment, um, to remove things about masters and servants and so on, because he says that children just don't understand that. So it's sort of, he, he's not he's not completely against you know, retelling or changing stories, but he thinks that you should you should read them in the time they were written or take the story and retell them. I think he's absolutely right. So obviously there are certain words which are now deeply offensive, which I think it's fair enough for publishers to want removed. Um, but in terms of the, the way in which the Roald Dahl publishers um, completely sort of censored and rewrote large chunks of his books, which are designed to kind of offend in a way and um, upset people and horrify. Um, That's part of the joy of them is the sort of nastiness of some of the characters. Um, I think it's gone far too far. And so I think he's right about the balance, actually, that the really offensive um, things, yes, get rid of. And if you want to retell a story, which is different to rewriting a story, then that's the way to go. Libby, what do you think? I think he's, uh, I mean, I agree that with a broad principle, and I've said so endlessly, but I think he's being a bit inconsistent. I don't think you should be nicking the title of Black Beauty and the reputation of a famous book like Black Beauty and retelling it while saying that nobody's ever allowed to change a word of his stuff. Um, you know, I, I think we should, you know, book, a book is a book. It should be, it's done, it's finished. And if the publishers are desperate, let them put a little asterisk next to the bad words and stick in a footnote saying, 
saying, by the way, this was 1926, you know, by the way, this was 1965. You know, we didn't know then about trance or whatever it might be. I, I just, I, I think, I think it's inconsistent. And I think children should be, I mean, children now read E. Nesbitt. They've got servants in those books and they absolutely love those books. Uh, you know, he's saying, oh, because there's servants in Black Beauty, he's got to tell it differently. I think there's a bit of inconsistency going on here. I love the man, but there you are. <laughs> He also reveals that he's um, he's after writing 140 books by um, by longhand, uh, he's got arthritis in his forefinger and he's now dictating it into his iPad, um, which apparently he says is really good because it means all, all the dialogue's good because it just sounds like someone talking. Although whenever I've tried to, take... but it's brilliant. It's it's a quantum leap, isn't it? From I only write with a pen to I write with an iPad and microphone. Yes, exactly. it's a huge leap over typewriters. He's, he's cut out the keyboard altogether. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's very good. Very good. Um, well, we will, um, uh, we, we'll, uh, we will hear that full interview with, uh, with Michael Morpoka a bit later on on the show. Up next, though, uh, lessons in Welsh. Uh, a week ago, uh, the three of us were discussing plans to rename Brecon Beacon. And uh, we weren't very enthusiastic about it, and it upset some of our Welsh listeners. So we've got someone who's going to, to give us a, a small Welsh lesson. Right, let's go back to something that happened about this time last week. Notice in the story that everyone, you're going to have the choice of whether you call it Brecon Beacons or blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I bet everyone calls it Brecon Beacons. You know, it's just, it's such a, <laughs> Libby's completely right. It's virtue signaling. And please don't get cross Welsh people because I don't speak Welsh. Welsh. No, um, Welsh, if, if our Welsh listener wants to get in touch, uh, <laughs> or email rachel.sylvester. <laughs> <laughs> and they did, didn't they, Rachel? I'm so sorry. It's appalling. <laughs> I'm really sorry to Wales and Welsh people, and it shows how really stupid I am that I don't speak Welsh. <laughs> uh, well, luckily, uh, we can make amends. We've got Helen Fulton, who's the Vice President of the Learned <laughs> Society of Wales with us. Uh, good morning, Helen Boradar. Boradar, Mas, good to be here. So, um, Boradar, uh, yes. Helen. Now, Helen, how do you say I'm very sorry in Welsh? <laughs> Oh, mein drugeni, mein drugeni, mein drugeni, if you want to be really humble. Mein drugeni, mein drugeni. Well, hopefully this will go some way to make amends. Um, uh, now, um, Helen, how how should we be pronouncing this new name for the Bre- for Brecon Beacon? Because I, I, I confess I, could, I struggled a bit last week. I didn't quite go blip, 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 blip. But um, <laughs> how should we be pronouncing it? Banai Brecheniog. Ban Banau Brecheniog. Banai 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 Brecheniog. Brecheniog. Banai Brecheniog. Yes, that's it. With a bit of a h on the ch. Banai Brecheniog. That's it. Pretty good. Go on then, Rachel. Now you can have a go. Okay, Banai Brecheniog. Where does the yeah? Very good. Banai Brecheniog. Yeah, <laughs> Libby, you're being very quiet. Do you want to join in this uh, this round this round of uh, apologies to the people of Wales? Banai uh, Brecheniog. That seems quite good. Now, Helen, how many people in Wales actually speak Welsh? How how many people did we offend last week? Well, I'd say up to around thirty percent of people in Wales um, speak it uh, quite fluently. I'd say about 20, 25% use it as their everyday language, their first language. So they live their entire lives through the medium of Welsh. They work in Welsh, they, they shop, they go to school. Um, they just live their lives mainly through their first language, which is Welsh. And is it so particular it is, parts of Wales 
um, where, um, where are, it's more dominant? There, there are regional pockets, Carmarthenshire in West Wales, um, the northwest of Wales is particularly Welsh-speaking. The cities have quite a lot of Welsh speakers, Cardiff, Swansea, where I live, there's quite a lot of Welsh-spoken. But it is an official language of Wales, so all the street signs, all the um, paperwork, like your electricity bill, your driver's licence, everything is bilingual. And that might be because we're having this conversation in English. We've had quite a lot of, lot of messages saying, long live the Beckham Beacons and I live in Wales. Nobody's going to call it the ridiculous Welsh name and that's coming from a Welshman, um, says somebody else. Um, how, how, how confident are you, Helen, that this will catch on? I think it will catch on. I think, um, I think people, are, uh, even people who don't speak Welsh, are respectful of the Welsh language, if they live in Wales particularly, they're respectful of the Welsh language. And even if you don't speak Welsh but you live in Wales, you're exposed to it all the time through, through paperwork and street signs, but also hearing it spoken around you. So I think you're always aware that you're living in a bilingual country when you live in Wales. It's pretty hard to ignore it. So even those people who say, oh, I don't speak Welsh, so it means nothing to me, in actual fact, they're probably hearing people in the street mm. saying, Shumai, how are you? And if someone said to them, Shumai, they might well be able to say, I'm fine. And so they have a few phrases that they've picked up through their neighbours, their friends, their kids at school. It's all around you when you live in Wales. Now, the other thing we need to talk about, um, uh, Libby, did you get your, did your phone go off yesterday at three o'clock? Did you have the whoop, whoop, whoop? Yeah, yeah, went off beautifully. Yeah, Very so good. did my husband's. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And yours was all right, Rachel? Yep, it all went off fine. I was very confused because other people in my house, they went off before mine and I thought I'd missed it. Um, uh, oh. But it eventually went off, eventually went off. But, Helen, there was an issue with it in Wales, wasn't there? Well, there was a, a typo, yes, yes. The word Vogel, V-O-G-E-L, appeared instead of the Ogel, meaning safe. I think it was a classic case of autocorrect, that would be my guess. So what does but, that mean? Um, so it's in the, in, the, in the sentence, others are safe. Yes, yeah, diogel means safe. So, and diogel means people who are safe. Eril and diogel, others safe. And so they wrote vogel. Is that, does that mean anything in Welsh? No, nothing at all. Oh, that's no. a shame. It would be funny if others are, I don't know, eating a banana or something. Would be, would be more more amusing. Um, well, Helen, thank you so much for 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 coming on and um, uh, putting us right. And we'd like just remind us again how we say we're sorry. How you say? I'm sorry. sorry. Oh, mein Drugeni. Mein Drugeni. Mein Drugeni. Maybe we should maybe we should do a Nicklex style video, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Have it remixed to music. Mein Drugeni. Drugeni. Do you think we've forgiven, Helen? Oh, I think so. Yes, yes. Just don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, uh, thank we you so much. We definitely won't. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, thank you so much for that. That's Helen Fulton there from the uh, Learned Society of Wales. So we've, we've sorted all that out. We, we will be much better, uh, much better behaved. Uh, just finally, before I let you go, um, uh, 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 Libby and Rachel, this, this situation in Sudan, how worried do you think... How critical do you think we should be of the government? There are 2,000 British citizens in Sudan. Are people drawing comparisons with Afghanistan? It's not quite the same, is it, Libby, given that in Afghanistan we had, what, two years' notice that the Americans were going to pull out? 
Well, I, I grew up. Yeah. I grew up in embassies, and and I'm fascinated by this because I think the prime, the prime and immediate thing is get the diplomats out. Partly because they tend to be targeted in countries which are going up in flames. Um, the interesting question next is how much do we owe to the business community, who are also you know, doing good for Britain by doing trade in foreign countries? Do you bring them out? But then, of course, there's the third thing in some countries: the holiday makers. And I've just been nipping back to um, uh, the great volcano. Remember, in about 2010. Uh, when the Royal Navy ship HMS Albion brought back a load of holidaymakers from Spain uh, as they were bringing back some soldiers as well. And among these holidaymakers rescued from Spain from the horror of having another few days of holiday uh, were Stanley Johnson. Uh, he was also coming back from holiday. So there, there is a sort of curious tradition. It's not really been sort of thought through exactly who among British subjects we should move fast to bring back yeah. and how bad the conditions have to be. Uh, whether they're there voluntarily, whether they're on business, whether they're there just because they're exploring, you know, how much does Britain owe them? My dad used to worry about this a lot, um, you know, as to how far he should sort of stretch every consular muscle to try and help people, uh, you know, who were just travelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think, uh, Rachel? Because actually, I suppose some British citizens might be happy to stay there. Yeah, I think the problem is it looks like the Foreign Office is getting its own people out first. So the EU ambassador, I notice, is just is staying. Uh, and their spokesman says it's because the captain stays with the ship and, uh, until it goes, until the last person is safe. Uh, and it looks, if the, you know, the embassy is completely decamped, it looks like you're abandoning people who are there. That's the danger. Uh, so they need to really strain every sinew to get other people out too. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And you can read the stories we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. And don't forget, get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, is he so softy or is he care hardy? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, regular listeners to PMQ's Unpacked on a Wednesday will be very familiar with this refrain. Mr Speaker, I've prosecuted thousands upon thousands of sex offenders. He's just shown he doesn't understand how the criminal justice system works. No wonder he can't fix it. Yeah, nearly every week, Keir Starmer mentions his previous job, Director of Public Prosecutions at the Crown Prosecution Service, a post he held for five years between 2008 and 2013. He thinks it shows to be a Prime Minister who'd be tough on crime, but the Conservatives think it's actually his soft spot. We've increased rape convictions by over 60%. Meanwhile, he, meanwhile, he, he attended, he attended 21 sentencing council meetings that watered down punishments. That's why they call him Sir Softy. Soft on crime, soft on criminals. So, in today's big thing, the court is in session. We're asking, is he Sir Softy or Sir Keir Hardy? We're going to hear the case for the prosecution and for the defence. First up, Patrick Stevens worked for Keir Starmer at the Crown Prosecution Service for five years. I started at the very beginning by asking him what the Director of Public Prosecutions actually does. The Director of Public Prosecutions is the Senior Prosecutor of England and Wales and heads up the Crown Prosecution Service. The Crown Prosecution Service is an independent prosecuting authority He, for all intents and purposes, leads the Crown Prosecution Service and sets direction, sets standards and uh, is responsible to the Attorney General, who in turn is responsible to Parliament for the performance of the Crown Prosecution Service. It's an open competition. Um, It is uh, often external barristers that have been appointed. There is one um, internal appointee, I think, in the history of the Crown Prosecution Service. And how involved is the Director of Public Prosecutions in individual prosecutions? When Keir Starmer says he's punished or prosecuted thousands of sex offenders or uh, he did this or he did that, how true is that of the role that he can take responsibility for individual prosecutions? I suppose it's quite a complex answer to that question, but in short... Um, direct involvement in individual cases is, of course, limited. The CPS has offices all over England and Wales. Um, When he was appointed, there were probably just short of 10,000 employees, um, and they were prosecuting something close on, I imagine, about a million cases a year, from the simplest um, speeding offence up to the most complex and serious offence. Um, And so his direct involvement in the vast majority is extremely limited. Um, However, certain important cases, there are procedures that mean that that cases have to come to the Crown, uh, to the Director of Public Prosecutions, and and he will be involved. He will also, um, more importantly, be involved in um, setting the standards and then ensuring that the managers that uh, 
there are both at the senior level and at the working level are managing and performing correctly. So I think directly, personally responsible, of course, uh, it's limited, but the, the art of any good leader is they take responsibility for what the organization does. And that is something that I think he took very seriously. And I think he would say he was ultimately responsible for everything that happened in the name of the CPS. And so weighing the balance force then, his record, he's clearly put his record sort of in the political domain, if you like, and there's now an argument about, you know, he talks about the good bits, the Conservatives talk about the bad bits. Way in the balance force, his record, good, bad, how does it compare to other directors of public prosecutions who are, you know, let's be honest, less well known than, than, than he is? Um, sum up for us how you think his record should be judged. I think I should caveat that but first by saying that um, I have a great deal of affection and respect for all of the DPPs that <laughs> of I've done. Yes, um, of course. And, and I say that most, I do that, say that totally sincerely. I work very closely with the two that preceded Keir Starmer and I um, work very closely with the one that followed and I know very well the current DPP and I have enormous respect um, because it's an unbelievably challenging role um, where ultimately, and I think this answers your question, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, um, and often both on the same case. But fundamentally, I would say uh, he was um, exceptionally good. You have to understand that in every single case, there will always be at least two diametrically opposed <laughs> views as to what is the right or wrong outcome. And so... Um, it would be strange if in any case you couldn't find somebody who could say that was right and somebody who couldn't say that was wrong. But all you can do is judge people on their overall record, their approach to the systemic approach. And and at a time of austerity, he brought in some radical reforms, led the CPS to get through incredibly difficult times and improve performance in a whole raft of areas. That was Patrick Stevens, who worked for Kiss Time at the Crown Prosecution Service for five years. I'm joined now by Tom Witherow, special projects reporter at The Times, who's been looking at the good and the bad of Keir Starmer's time as Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, his piece was in the, in the paper the weekend, you can read it online. So, Tom, that was quite a positive review uh, from someone who knew him. Um, put it in the balance for us. Uh, take us through some of the successes and some of the failures of, of the time that Keir Starmer, who's, he's the one who's chosen to put his record on the table, uh, the highs and lows. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it all starts in 2020 when he was standing to be the Labour leader and he, he said in a, uh, a video to, to win that contest that he was going to stand up, to, that he'd stood up to the powerful in this job. And there he spoke about uh, his prosecution of journalists, uh, the uh, former cabinet minister, Chris Hoon, um, and, and MPs expenses. And um, so these were certainly some of the, the positives from his time. Um, and, I, and I would add to that that uh, many of the people I spoke to for that article said that he he grasped the nettle on grooming gangs. You remember the uh, the scandal broken by the Times in 2011 about northern grooming gangs and and young white women uh, and girls being trafficked um, for sexual abuse. Um, he he was even received a commendation from the Home Affairs Select Committee in 2013 and in their report where they actually said when he when he left office we'll miss him. Um, but at the same time... Which is the thing, he was bandying around in the PMQs last week. Absolutely. Um, and of course, he, he has, over time, struggled to shake some of the questions about the Savile Inquiry. Yeah. Um, so just explain people the facts of that, because Boris Johnson famously threw it around in the House of Commons when he was really in trouble over party gates. 
Uh, Keir Starmer was director of public prosecutions at the time, but it didn't cross his desk, the question of prosecuting Jimmy Absolutely. Silver. He wasn't the reviewing lawyer in the case. Um, and really, there were, there, what happened is that there were four complainants who were interviewed by two different police forces at different times, and it was decided by that reviewing lawyer that there, there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute, and the case was dropped. Um, and it was only later in the Alison Levitt review, which was commissioned by Sakir, that she found that had the case been dealt differently by police and by, and, and by prosecutors and different information given to those complainants, they may have felt better about going ahead to trial. And I suppose what this shows is that in, in laying claim to things that happened on his watch that he's proud of as being part of his record, which may or may not really have had anything to do with him, it leaves him open to criticism which, uh, about bad things that happened on his watch, which he also didn't have anything to do with. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's also worth remembering that some of these really high-profile cases will have come up to his desk. Yes, yeah. Um, there's one uh, in particular that I'd mention. We, we spoke to the stepson of Ian Tomlinson, who yeah. was a, a newspaper vendor who, during a protest on his way home from work, was caught up in the, in the crowds and was pushed over by a police officer. And he died very quickly afterwards, minutes afterwards. Um, and this one did go all the way up because it was um, there was initially believed not to be enough evidence to prosecute. There were uh, problems with the autopsy and, and the pathologist who carried out the initial autopsy was struck off. Um, but the, the family said to us last week that they felt that Keir Starmer was both cold and unemotional in the meetings that they had with him um, and they criticised his failure to prosecute and even said that they believed that this has helped create an a culture of unaccountability in the Metro, Metropolitan Police. We are taking a look at Keir Starmer's record as Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, we've uh, we've heard uh, from some of his uh, one of his supporters, we heard from Tom Witherow, who uh, Times reporter, who took us through uh, some of his record. Baroness Helena Kennedy was Keir Starmer's uh, senior at the Doughty Street Chambers Law Firm. And I asked her whether Starmer's claim to have prosecuted thousands of sex criminals was legitimate, given that he wasn't actually making the decisions in those individual cases. He's making it clear, this is my policy direction. I want us to start looking at the ways in which crimes against women and children have to be addressed seriously and not deprioritised, because in many places the thing was, you know, people set up their own priorities and uh, chiefs of police and uh, police commissioners and people want to set the priorities. And so you're having to say, I really want us to be doing something something about the whole dearth of prosecutions in this arena. And I think there was a general sort of disturbance that police didn't like dealing with this stuff. And uh, and so it was really about taking it by the, the, the throat and making sure that up and down the country that that is the direction of travel, that you have to make sure that there's prosecutions in those cases. And that needs leadership. And so we can't pretend that this, these things just happen when he's saying, I made sure that there were all those uh, cases were prosecuted and that this was given priority. It was a policy decision by him to make sure that the people know that these things are not going to be low on the agenda and dealt with uh, as, as de minimis. If he's going to take credit for that, though, does he not also then have to answer for those cases? The Carl Beach case, the fantasist who said that there was a paedophile ring in number 10, Harvey Proctor pursued by the police, uh, the, the, uh, Bill Roach, um, Paul Gambaccini, all prosecuted 
by this new aggressive line that Keir Starmer had put in place. He then has to answer for that, doesn't he? If he's going to take well, the credit for uh, I prosecuted thousands and thousands of sex offenders, he has to answer uh, for those cases, doesn't he? Paul Gambaccini, for example, was not prosecuted. The shameful thing in Paul Gambaccini's case was that the police and with mm. Cliff Richards leaked out um, and made known the fact that certain um, people who'd been in the public eye were being investigated, right. um, when in fact you shouldn't do that until people are charged. And Paul Gambaccini was never charged. And so uh, he wasn't prosecuted. And uh, and so at least there you've got some good decision-making being made. Now, one of the difficulties about the Beach case was that people are interrogated not by the prosecution, not by the lawyers. It's by the police. The police are the investigators in our system. And the Beach thing was, I'm afraid, about the police being too ready to believe somebody um, because a lot of public pressure was being applied about the failure to prosecute people. And there was, uh, there was a lot of you know myth-building around rings of uh, paedophiles and so on. And so I'm afraid that the police can often you know, feel the pressure of public and uh, and indeed media pressure to prosecute. But I suppose, I suppose it goes back to the point, doesn't it, that Keir Starmer can't have it both ways. He can't have prosecuted the good ones, which he didn't really play a role in, and then distance himself from the ones that went wrong, which he also didn't really have a role in. If you are a minister and you say, I am leading foreign policy of this country, and uh, and in this circumstance, we've got more uh, business now because of, of the great diplomacy that we've been doing. We've got more business with China. We've got more business with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. We've got more of this and more of that. Then he's not saying that he himself necessarily did all the groundwork. What he's saying is that he drove a policy which then, if you're a good leader, you know, filters down into the system and leads to results. Um, just, just finally, Elena Kennedy, this question of this, we currently have the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition in this sort of battle to see who, who can be most hardline on crime, it seems. Crime is a sort of big big battleground. Yeah, I want, um, I want to just say that because yeah. I, I find it so disheartening because this business of having a Dutch auction on crime and criticising each other and saying and calling each other out on who did what is, is so pointless. Um, I saw it happening during the Blair years, and it really isn't a useful thing to do. Let's talk about crime. Are you worried about crime? Oh, we're all worried about crime. I don't want my handbag stolen in the street. I don't want uh, my car to be broken into. So everybody has got a view on crime. None of us us like the idea of folk getting away with bad things. And we're worried about violence against women and girls. And so we want things done about all of that. And so people then start talking about, I'm very very disappointed, I have to tell you, with with what I'm hearing from Labour at the moment, which is, you know, throw more people in jail. Um, everybody who commits a crime um, involving a child has to be sent to jail. Some of those people need deep psychiatric help, and it's not jail that they're going to get it in. And uh, and we, ha- we have no alternatives to prison because the probation service has been destroyed. So, you know, here we have all this backlog of cases and, uh, and nothing being done about them. And also, we have no alternatives to prison to talk about should we actually be doing things which are involving training, therapy, getting people off drugs, getting people off drink, helping people to make, get their life back on an even keel. None, none of that, because we, we've withered social work on the vine. And so it sounds to me, well, my next question was, Mark, I could already slightly predict it. When you've got the Labour Party putting out an ad saying, do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. And those guidelines uh, were drawn up by the Sensing Council, which Keir Starmer sat on in 2014, when Rishi Sunak wasn't even a... An MP, so it's not really Rishi Sunak's fault. I mean, it's but you'll probably tell me it's not Keir Starmer's fault either. But putting out an advert like that, I, I mean, I was, I thought that was, uh, uh, that was really uh, abysmal. 
I thought it was abysmal. You need judges need to have discretion um, in, in in sentencing. And yes, of course, the vast majority of people who commit, commit crimes involving children um, should be going to, to prison and they will be going to prison. Judges are not daft, for God's sake. When you have these things where you make it an absolute thing, you know, you commit that, that something in that whole area and there's no discretion left to judges, it totally messes up your criminal justice system. Judges separate from the political system, have to be the people who weigh up very carefully. And the sentencing guidelines are there to say, in in the majority of cases, anything involving um, a, a violation of involving children, people go to jail. But there may be rare cases where you might, might choose to do something else. And it may be that that's the appropriate thing. That was Baroness Helena Kennedy, uh, who's worked with Keir Starmer and is a Labour peer. Well, listening to that was Harvey Proctor, who was a victim of the fantasist Carl Beach, who wrongly claimed that there was a VIP paedophile ring, including the bosses of MI5 and MI6, uh, backed up, of course, by some very prominent people, including the uh, the then Labour MP, uh, Tom Watson. Harvey Proctor joins me now. Hi, Harvey. Good morning to you and good morning to your listeners. What do you make of the analysis of Keir Starmer's record? Do you blame him for creating a culture in which victims were automatically believed by investigators? Or, as Elena Kennedy was saying there, she says it was the police, not the CPS at fault. Of course it was both. Here's Starmer, for PR reasons, and because he thought there were not enough prosecutions, successful prosecutions for rape, changed centuries of legal history so that you were not innocent until proven guilty. He made speeches, he promoted a change of policy that victims should be believed in the first instance. He then promoted that policy with police forces up and down the country with the College of Policing, with Tom Windsor, uh, uh, and others. Along came Mr. Beach and the Metropolitan Police just waiting for an opportunity to put Sir Keir Starmer's policy into operation, picked on him and said before they'd even started to investigate that Mr. Beach being a complainant that's the right word, uh, not a victim, a complainant, um, should be regarded as credible and true. So Starmer started it. The Metropolitan Police tried to finish it. Let me be quite clear. I was not prosecuted. I was not arrested or prosecuted or imprisoned or any of that. But because of that change of policy, centuries of criminal justice system turned on its head. Many people were prosecuted, were wrongly imprisoned. And that is why I will not stop uh, and, until this is reversed. So just, just finally, Harvey, do you think, he's standing on his record, he keeps banning his record mm-hmm. around in the House of Commons, do you think Keir Starmer's record as Director of prosecu- Public Prosecutions makes him fit to be Prime Minister? Just on that one single issue that I've outlined, he is not fit to be leader of Her Majesty's uh, opposition, let alone prime minister.
he should hold his head up and explain why he took those policy decisions and say, does he honestly think they were right? I believe they were wrong. I would like the opportunity of discussing with Sir Keir Starmer these matters. So I challenge him via Times Radio or indeed any other media uh, outlet to get us together on the same program at the same time to discuss this. Sir, Sir Keir Starmer runs a mile from discussing his work at the DPP, um, at the crime, uh, criminal prosecution um, body. Um, I want him to, to, to say why he changed these centuries-old position of innocence until proven guilty. Harvey went. Harvey Potter, good to, good to speak to you. Harvey Potter, their former Conservative MP. We should say that Keir Starmer's allies deny that he created a culture where accusers were automatically believed and points to comments in 2013 in which he said false allegations could ruin reputations and devastate lives. Uh, let's now speak to the Conservative MP, Sarah Brickliffe, to get her take on this. Hi, Sarah. Hi, good morning. Nice to have you with us. Uh, when you sit in the House of Commons uh, and you uh, listen to Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak squabbling over Keir Starmer's record, who do you think's right? I mean, Matt, you've already mentioned it. Keir Starmer is creating this image of himself as DPP. And for him to then push that forward, I think it's right that scrutiny is there. And, and it goes back to the point that was previously made of him having to now answer some of those difficult questions. I mean, it's not an entirely positive story, which is he is pushing out to the public. You look at the, his expenses, for example, during his time, uh, some of the comments made by his own shadow attorney general about him letting victims of rape down. I, and just so that there are things, there are questions to be asked. And when he is pushing to the public about his record at DPP, it is right that those questions should be asked and, uh, uh, and he, he should be scrutinised. Uh, isn't the bigger problem, if you look at the, the polls right now and you ask the question, which party do you trust on law and order, Labour's ahead of the Conservatives. So whatever happened between 2008 and 2013, the voters are, uh, are more concerned about what's happened under 13 years of Conservative government. And I, and I think one of the key priorities of, of the Prime Minister is to tackle crime and antisocial behaviour. And that's that's one of the messages I hear on the doorstep in the Highburn has London. But then if you look at the Labour Party's record, they've consistently voted against tougher measures for criminals. Whilst I've been a member of Parliament here uh, in Westminster. So and it was just before he became the leader of the Labour Party that I, uh, Sir Keir Starmer was actively campaigning against deporting foreign nationals. Now, if I speak to people on the doorstep and, and I tell them about this, they're, they're absolutely horrified. He says one thing and does another. Uh, and I'm sure you were, you were out and about at the week, end of last week and over the weekend speaking to people. Is anyone, is any normal person you've met used the phrase, so softy? Uh, not yet. However, <laughs> I've had a couple of emails on it, but no, not yet. Um, but I'll be honest, I was, I was watching the London Marathon yesterday, but... Lots of door knocking this week. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, Sarah, really good to speak to you. Thanks so much. So, uh, Sarah Brickliffe there, the Conservative MP for Hinber. Um, just finally, Tom Witherow is still here, uh, Times reporter. Tom, it, it feels to me like anyone's record, five years in a job, there's some good bits, there's some bad bits. The, the challenge that Keir Starmer's got is that having put it on the table, as he could have just said that it wasn't a political job, 
what happened there happened there. Let's talk about, you know, politics now. He has put his record on the table and in doing so opens him up to lots of criticism. I mean, in researching this piece, I found it really striking how when you're the DPP, it's an incredibly public role. Tom, really good to see you. Uh, Tom, by the way, though, uh, reporter for The Times. We also heard from uh, Conservative MP Sarah Backcliffe, former Conservative MP Harvey Proctor, Baroness Kennedy and Patrick Stevens. And ultimately, the jury in this uh, is going to be the public uh, when we come round to uh, the general election as to whether or not uh, they think he is Sir Softy or Keir Hardy. I suspect we could continue to argue about Keir Starmer's record for a long time to come. That's all we've got time for on today's episode, though. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.